Last evening we explored the first foundation or the first domain of mindfulness. Mindfulness of the body in the body. This evening we'll explore the second, third, and fourth domain of mindfulness. And I'd like to begin with a question. Am I looking in the right place and in the right way for the happiness that I'm seeking? The second establishment or the second domain of mindfulness is mindfulness of feelings. And in Pali the word is Vedna or Vedna Nupasana. This uh, foundation of mindfulness is potentially a particularly illuminating aspect of our practice towards directing our natural inclination for happiness to the right place and in the right way. Every experience that comes through each of the sense doors, touching the body, the body touching, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and thought provides some kind of specific information to the mind, to the heart. And there are particular feelings that occur through sense door contact with all of the various phenomena that we experience. From the perspective of the Buddha Dhamma, these feelings are very simply and clearly classified into three groups. Pleasant feeling, unpleasant feeling, and neither pleasant nor unpleasant feeling, or what we could call neutral feeling. These feelings or feeling tones arise in response to either physical or mental stimuli. Attachment, emotional attachment or aversion to sense door experience is a result that often very quickly follows along directly from these feelings. So for instance, if one experiences a pleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object. For most people, there's almost an immediate emotional attachment to the feeling or to the object or to both. And then when the pleasant feeling subsides, which of course it always does, the desire to get it back or to get another one comes up quickly, either quite overtly or maybe subtly. A craving for arises, with craving immediately preceded by a sense of dissatisfaction, and sometimes also very quickly followed by a state of dissatisfaction. And so our peace, our pleasant abiding, our sense of well-being is disturbed. The nature of dissatisfaction is agitation, an inner restlessness, which we could translate into modern language as stress, mental and physical stress. The experience of craving itself is experienced as some degree of a kind of burning contraction if we really see it clearly. So again we could say stress. When we experience unpleasant feeling in relationship to physical or mental contact with some object, most people almost immediately experience emotional dislike or some form of aversion 
maybe fear, boredom, or hatred, or anger, maybe disappointment. And we want to get rid of, or get away from the object, or the feeling, or both. And so again, our mental peace is disturbed. And so again, we're feeling stress. There's a lot of stress in this life that comes directly from one's relationship to pleasant and unpleasant feelings, if we really take a close look. When the feeling is at least to some degree neither pleasant nor unpleasant or neutral, often the tendency is to ignore what's going on not connecting with present moment experience and maybe accompanied by a subtle or not so subtle state of not wanting, not really interested in being with the experience of that moment. I think it's pretty safe to say that most of us are intense experience junkies. If it's intense, we pay attention whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. And if it's not intense, we often just don't notice. And we might think, nothing's happening. And so again, we're probably craving something or experiencing the aversion of boredom or maybe both. Without intimate and careful mindful attention to feelings, they have the potential power to disturb us emotionally. They have the potential power to make us suffer. An amazing thing about these feelings is that we often forget that they change. The very same object that produced pleasant feeling in our mind, sometimes just within moments, can produce unpleasant feelings in the mind. And so again, we experience attachment, clinging, or various aversive states. Forgetting is the opposite of remembering. Remembering the connection that mindfulness offers to see things just as they are. Quite a number of years ago now, when I was sitting a three-month retreat at the Insight Meditation Society, in this small back dining room, there are some shelves along the wall with the retreatants or the yogis' special stashes on them, people bringing things that they think they'll need or that they think they won't get or that they really do need. stashed on these shelves. And I had a stash on one of these shelves during this retreat. At one point, there was a note for me um, from the person on top of my stash, in in one of those shelves, uh, from the person next to me, sitting on top of my stash. And I had, at that point, no idea who that person was. I hadn't really paid any attention to the people taking things and putting things from the shelves. The note was offering me some green tea from his stash. And a very pleasant feeling arose. Mostly it was because I'd been noticed. (laughs) A gift being offered for me. Very pleasant. And I like green tea, so that was an added pleasant feeling. So I answered his note and thanked him next day a second note came offering me a hat. (laughs) He'd noticed that I'd been going outside and uh, without one and it was starting to get quite cool. And uh, a not very pleasant feeling arose in my mind at that point. I felt impinged upon. I wasn't liking the attention anymore. But I answered his note very politely and thanked him and said, I have a hat. 
Then the next day, a third note came. And this was a practice question. And a most decidedly unpleasant feeling arose in my mind. And a very quick, unmindful reaction in the mind to write back a not-so-polite note. But fortunately, mindfulness and wise discernment kicked in and I didn't write back a nasty note. I just simply relaxed and let go and didn't respond at all. And the note stopped. I never got another note. At the end of the retreat, I spoke with this person uh, and uh, he said he'd gone through a similar process and was very grateful, he said, after going through some kind of inner turmoil uh, that I didn't answer the last note. He was very glad himself not to keep writing and receiving notes. As I think you would all probably agree, when you feel pleasant or unpleasant feelings as a result of contact through some sense or object, the pleasant and unpleasant feeling isn't in the external object, nor is it within the internal object of attention, such as a bodily sensation or a thought. The feeling is in the mind. So what is it that's often the root of the feeling that arises in relationship to our experiences? In my three-month retreat story, the feeling tones and the subsequent action of answering the first two notes and then the feeling tone followed by a reaction in my mind to the third note were all very clearly coming from a place of self, coming from a place of me. When we begin to see that all of the feelings we experience are within us, that we ourselves are really mainly responsible for the feelings that we experience, we begin to know that we can't really blame others for the way that we feel. What for many of us are habituated storylines such as he made me angry or she made me feel terrible or he made me feel so happy or, or this place or these people make me feel so peaceful or make me feel so miserable. As we begin to pay a careful attention to the feelings that arise, the habituated storylines begin to lose their strength. They begin to fall apart. In the light of seeing things clearly, blaming others or making others responsible for our feelings isn't realistic. It's not the way things really work. We have the possibility of letting go of the stories, the myths that we have about ourselves and about others, the various beliefs that we have about ourselves, what we think we're capable of or not capable of, how we define ourselves. We have the opportunity to let go, to relinquish various beliefs about that we have about our bodies, our mind, our emotions, our creative capacity. Beliefs that we may have held onto and stuffed into the crowded closet of our mind for many, many years. And right now then, just simply pay attention to our experience, just as it is in the moment. It's really so simple. It's hard to believe that this is all it takes. Although, as you well know, though it's simple, it's not so easy.
the potentially illuminating aspect of practice in relating in relationship to cultivating a careful attention to feelings is that it's at this point in our experience that we have the direct immediate opportunity to drop our habituated reactions of attachment clinging and the various permutations of aversion it's at this point of paying a close attention to feelings that we in our experience of noticing the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant or the feelings of neither pleasant nor unpleasant of neutral that we can in moments just see experience and know bodily sensation visual forms odors sound taste and the manifestation of various thought forms know the attendant feeling tone and that just be that in that moment there's no mental suffering the heart the mind is not disturbed it's a moment of ease it's a moment of peace giving birth for the first time 46 years ago was my first formal teaching and practice in mindfulness although it wasn't called that <laughs> the lama's birthing method was a training in really being fully present being fully awake and aware in the process in the process of birthing that was happening in and of itself and that i was uh, very most certainly very involved with throughout the training we were told that any resistance to the process that was taking place would make it extremely uncomfortable and most likely quite unpleasant which i very quickly discovered when the birthing actually began getting my self out of the way of it while at the same time being totally present engaged and aware in the midst of it all was very intense not easy in the way that we usually think of things being easy but really quite okay and actually mostly neutral in the light of pleasant or unpleasant feelings selfless engagement in the birthing process allowed it to be incredibly interesting and really truly filled with awe and wonderment which that was quite pleasant that part of it it was a very powerful lesson that has continued to inform me over the years the buddha tells us that we're happy when we're mindful and there was a pervasive happiness that accompanied me throughout this birthing process that i now clearly understand was there because i was really truly mindful mindfully present in the process when you engage with a full presence in the activity of any of the creative practices that are being offered in this retreat movement seeing drawing writing and when activity shows up as being pleasant or unpleasant or maybe neutral one aspect of our practice is to be mindfully aware without making something of it 
meaning without interpreting or speculating, without analyzing or evaluating. As we meet and connect to experience with an unfettered mindful presence, we find authenticity, open-hearted interest, joy, and spontaneous creativity emerging. Feelings are particularly important mental factors in developing insight into the cause of suffering because these feelings are what condition our mind to hold on to the pleasant or push away or avoid or ignore the unpleasant. Learning to mindfully observe feelings with more balance, with more equanimity, and thus less attachment, aversion, and identification is an important and very helpful door to open on our way out of suffering. So this second establishment or domain of mindfulness in our practice, contemplation of the feelings simply in themselves, the feelings in the feelings. An amazing aspect of mindfulness is that it has the capacity to connect directly and simply to the experiences that come in through the six sense doors with what we can call bare awareness. With bare awareness, providing very immediate and direct access to these experiences, just simply being known. And sometimes we may experience just this. But at times, and maybe quite often, the direct, simple knowing of phenomena may almost immediately be colored or modified by various mental factors or states of mind. And this being the third domain or the third foundation of mindfulness mindfulness of the mind. The word in Pali is citta nupasana. Mindfulness of the various mental factors or states of mind that arise in relationship to experience. So for example, we go to the marketplace. The marketplace of the lunch food display or the marketplace of where we do walking meditation this hour, or the marketplace of which shirt to put on today, or maybe the marketplace of thinking, how should I move in response to the direction that Zuleika has just given? Recognizing this as a thought based in the conditioned habit of needing to be in control, which is based in fear. And maybe for that moment, just simply relaxing and letting go of self, allowing the body to move spontaneously, naturally. Living here in Taos, a place that many people visit specifically to come to the marketplace, to partake of the marketplace, because there's so much beauty that abounds here, both in the environment and within all the shops. I went through a period of practice here some years ago where I'd walk down the street looking into the shop windows and watch my mind and body. Awareness of seeing. Just seeing. 
seeing various forms and colors, a kind of bare attention. And then I would notice the coloration in the mind of wanting. The coloration of leaning into, physically even, in the body and the mind, leaning into. Even sometimes the strong desire of seeming need. So greed, coloring a moment's experience of seeing. A very good practice in the midst of the marketplace. Any marketplace, actually. And I continued this practice until I finally, after quite some time, found myself more and more often just seeing the forms and the colors and simply, joyfully, and appreciatively bearing witness to all of the beauty. To sustain and deepen in our practice, to see things as they are, Two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required of us are honesty and humility. Pretense, self-deception, and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. So for instance, if another person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even expressing greed or some form of aversion. It really doesn't matter if his or her image of me is shattered. What matters is that I'm willing to come face to face with these mind states, bringing mindfulness right to the greed or the fear or the anger or the sadness. And as you know, this isn't always so easy. Tremendous interest and energy and humility is needed to sustain the observation, to see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, without without pretense, without self-deceit, and without judgment. You don't try to project a different image to yourself or to anyone else. Vimala Thakar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who has been a profound and very powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this about humility. And these are her words. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer. The austerity of humility to see things as they are. To see my inner being as it is. Good or bad. To observe it as it is without defending it. Without justifying it. Without interpreting or judging it. Without taking pride in it. And without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath, I hope, she says. There's a story that the Dalai Lama tells about himself a number of years ago now uh, he was uh, taken window shopping in some uh, big city to an area where there were lots of small shops that sell all kinds of small mechanical parts and mechanical systems and the person who took him uh, to this part of the city knew that he was particularly interested and fascinated by the mechanical workings of things For instance, he really likes to take apart watches and work on them and then put them back together again. 
the Dalai Lama said that he found himself looking in the windows of these shops and at first just simply seeing with a very open curiosity and interest. And then all of a sudden realizing that he wanted everything. He wanted all of it. He said, I didn't even know what any of it was for. I just wanted it all. (laughs) We're all familiar with that state, I'm sure. (laughs) Are you mindful of your mind? You might ask yourself, how driven am I by my desires, my attachments or my resistance and aversions? Taking a look now at the marketplace of your inner world of meditation, meditation experience. So for instance, a moment of deep calm a mindful moment of directly knowing this calm. Really not no thought about it, just it as it is. Just calm, just tranquility. And then, maybe quickly followed by grasping, wanting tranquility to never leave maybe even some degree of fear around losing your tranquility. Without judgment, directly knowing this experience, this experience of attachment as well. This is our practice too. Mindfulness is able to know the mental factor or the coloration in the mind of wanting, greed, or within the greed itself, or the colorations of anger or hatred or fear or delusion within the state itself. That's a possibility. Any state of mind can be known within itself maybe even from its very arising and recognizing and knowing its very particular characteristics, how it acts and noticing its changing nature and maybe noticing its ending, its momentary cessation. A moment of consciousness might be colored by faith or by delight or dullness or some form of aversion. As I'm sure you've experienced at times, each of these mental factors, these colorations, might arise in relationship to the bare awareness of any given experience, such as a breath, a sensation in the body, a movement, a visual image, a sound, a taste, thoughts as memories or plans or fantasies or images in the mind. The Thai monk and Buddhist scholar, Venerable Analayo, says this, the element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati The word sati, as I mentioned a few nights ago, translates as mindfulness. The element of non-reactive watchful receptivity in sati forms the foundation for sati-patana, or the four foundations of mindfulness, as an ingenious middle path, which neither suppresses the contents of experiences nor compulsively reacts to them. This technique of simple recognition constitutes an ingenious way of turning obstacles to meditation into meditation objects. Practicing this way, bare attention of a hindrance becomes a middle path 
between suppression and indulgence. In the Abhidhamma, which is a very clear and detailed treatise on the workings of the mind from the Buddhist perspective, there's a long and detailed list of the many and various mental factors that may quickly come along to accompany and color the bare awareness of any present moment experience. This degree of perception and distinction with such minute detail regarding each and all of these states of mind isn't uh, absolutely necessary for our practice here. It's really enough for you at this point to be mindfully aware of the more usually or ordinarily experienced colorations of any given moment of consciousness as they arise and as they quickly change and as they cease. So, for instance, mindfulness knowing delight, calm, joy, faith, or liking or dislike, judgment, disappointment, clinging, attachment, fear or anger or hatred or irritation or appreciation. Knowing any of these mind states in relationship to the bare awareness of the experiences of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, moving, touching, thinking. And again, as a reminder, the essential nature of mindfulness is that there's no attitude of judging or discriminating between right and wrong, good or bad. It's just this, in this moment, whatever it is and however it is. Within mindfulness itself, there's no grasping, no rejecting, no manipulation, no judging or evaluation of experience. So this third establishment of mindfulness, mindfulness of the mind, mindful awareness of mental factors, awareness of states of mind, seeing and knowing the colorations of consciousness in themselves. The last aspect of mindfulness that the Buddha points us is called mindfulness or contemplation of dhammas. And dhamma in this case can be translated as the truth or the way of things or the natural laws. This domain of mindfulness can be grounded specifically in any of the six sense doors. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. This fourth domain of mindfulness, mindful awareness, contemplation of dhammas, may also be grounded in any of the five hindrances. And these are sleepiness, restlessness or agitation, doubt, or the grasping mind or the aversive mind. The particular and wonderful and illuminating specialty, so to say, about this fourth domain of mindfulness is that whatever our experience is, it's seen through the doors of Dhamma. It's seen through the doors of the way of things, through the doors of the nature of things. Whatever experience is in the physical or mental realm, this fourth domain of mindfulness sees and knows experience through the doors of the truth. It 
So, for instance, speaking briefly this evening about just one of the insightful doors that particularly relates to our practice in this retreat. This is the doorway of the three universal characteristics that all experience of body and mind are imbued with. In this fourth domain of mindfulness, we can directly, experientially pay attention to, recognize, and clearly come to know that every experience of mind and body is always changing, is impermanent, is anicca. Each and every phenomena of body and mind, as well as everything we perceive around us, begins and ends, arises and disappears. There are hundreds, thousands, millions of little endings, deaths, moment to moment to moment, breath by breath. As practice deepens and matures, it gets easier and easier to open to, clearly see, accept, and surrender to this perfectly natural truth. What appears to be a steady flow of experience, even with the presence of consciousness itself, is not as we usually perceive it to be. The reality of body-mind experience can be likened to the separate frames of a film. The illusion, the delusion, being as though it's happening as an ongoing continuous flow. When in reality, it's all beginning and ending, arising and passing away on the most minute level, second by second by second. and from the Buddha in relationship to this. Yogis, I will teach you the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Listen to that. And what yogis is the way that is suitable to attain Nibbana? Here a yogi sees the eye as impermanent, sees forms as impermanent, sees eye contact as impermanent, sees whatever feelings arise with eye contact as the condition whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. She or he sees the ear as impermanent, sees the mind, mental phenomena, as impermanent, sees mind or consciousness as impermanent, and sees mind contact and whatever feelings arise with mind contact as the object, whether pleasant or painful, as impermanent. This, yogis, is the way that is suitable for attaining Nibbana. Every experience is anicca, impermanent, which is the first universal characteristic. And because of anicca, no experience that comes in through the six sense doors is ultimately or permanently satisfying. And so we continue on through our lifetime searching for something, some experience that will finally satisfy, finally make us happy. This unsatisfactoriness and the endless search is what the Buddha called dukkha, very often translated as suffering. And this is the second universal characteristic. The last of the three characteristics that we may come to know within this fourth domain of mindfulness is anatta, the truth that all experience, all phenomena is selfless is totally interdependent and constantly changing. In other words, is totally contingent in its existence, both within its own seeming solidity, 
as well as in its seeming set or static place in this world. Our body being an immediately available example of this with all parts and functions of this body being totally interdependent and all of it constantly in flux. All is anatta. All is empty of any separate, solid, sustaining self. As we begin to directly experience and know anicca, impermanence, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, the third universal characteristic, anatta, or not-self, begins to reveal itself directly through our practice of mindful awareness. The not-self, or emptiness of all experience, all phenomena, shows up quite naturally and often in unexpected and subtle ways. We begin to truly understand that no matter how hard we might try, there's absolutely nothing that can be clung to. Even our often very tightly grasped, seemingly set-in-place self-identities. As we begin to intimately, experientially see and know these three universal truths, our relationship to life begins to change. Wisdom, equanimity, and relinquishment quite naturally begin to blossom with this seeing and knowing. And we start to relax more deeply into simply and more clearly being here with things just as they are. There's a wonderful metaphorical teaching. Uh, It's Stephen Mitchell's rendition of the Narcissus story that I'd like to share with you in relationship to what we're exploring. As some of you, most of you probably know, Stephen Mitchell is a poet and translator. And this is his version of Narcissus. It was not the image of his own face that transfixed him as he bent down over the pool. He had seen that face often before, in mirrors, in a thousand photographs, in women's eyes. It was an undistinguished face, but handsome enough with its long eyelashes, full lips and stately nose, sloping to a curious plateau near the tip. No, it was something else now that rooted him to the spot. Kneeling there, gazing into the so-taken-for-granted form, he grew more and more poignantly aware that it was mere surface. When the water was calm, it was calm. When the water rippled at the touch of a leaf or a fish, it too rippled, or broke apart when he churned the water with his hand. More and more fascinated, he kept staring through the image of his face into the depths beneath, filled with a multitude of other moving, shadowy forms. He knew that if he stayed there long and patiently enough, he would be able to see straight through to the bottom. And at that moment, he knew the image would disappear. In a conversation with his student, Megia, the Buddha offers an important and clear teaching about anicca, anatta, and liberation. And these are the Buddha's words. Contemplation of impermanence should be cultivated for dispelling the conceit, I am. For when one perceives impermanence, Megia, the perception of not-self is established. 
with the perception of not-self. The conceit, I am, is eliminated. And this is Nibbana, here and now. And so as we go along in our practice, and when we're ready, this fourth domain of mindfulness, mindfulness of dhammas, opens up the beautiful door to freedom, the simple and beautiful door to liberation, which we may experience just very briefly in a moment with it eventually becoming more and more pervasive throughout our life. (coughs) From this perspective, we could say that every single experience, every single phenomena holds the Dhamma, holds the truth. The Dhamma, the true nature of things, the way of things, is within everything simply here to be seen, to be known, if we just take the time to experience our experience intimately and directly, if we just take the time to really be present and look carefully. The setting, the pace, and the support offered in an intensive retreat such as this with formal sitting and walking, movement, seeing, drawing, and writing practice interspersed with each other is a rare and a perfect opportunity to deepen your direct experience and understanding of the reality of not-self. The truth is right here to see directly through every sense door, through every so-called hindrance, through every experience of body, mind, and heart. And within each and all phenomena that's happening everywhere around us. In some Buddhist schools this is spoken of as within samsara is nirvana. Within the whirlpool of our ordinary lives, your ordinary life here in retreat, within the whirlpool of samsara, if we metaphorically stand still, cool, calm, focused, mindfully attentive, in that moment, we're no longer conditioned by ignorance, by ignoring, and by being caught in the whirlpool of pleasant and unpleasant. We're no longer caught in the whirlpool of I like it, I don't like it. No longer caught and unaware in the whirl of continually, unwittingly moving around and around the wheel. in the midst of samsara, we can stop and pay an extraordinary kind of attention, a mindful attention, and wake up. Mindfulness is the tool, the medicine that allows concentration, joy, equanimity, wisdom, and creativity to blossom. Mindful awareness is the primary tool, the medicine for our awakening. And as it was so graphically talked about during the time of the Buddha, we take the medicine to purify the sickness and heal ourselves. We have the possibility of wandering into the natural state of the equipoise of an undisturbed mind. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising and changing, coming and going. 
no different than anything else in this world. Nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to. One of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, speaks about the fact that essentially there's just one Dhamma that we need to practice, which is maybe a great relief to those who think that they have to practice many, many things, have to practice many Dhammas to be liberated from suffering. In Pali, the word for this one Dhamma is apamada which is sometimes translated as vigilance and which can be understood actually as it's elaborated on in the commentaries to the Buddhist suttas as mindfulness. So from this perspective, mindfulness is the one Dhamma that we need to practice. In relationship to vigilance and the open-hearted receptivity of practicing with a clear and focused mindfulness, some words from Carlos Castaneda. Sorcerers understand discipline as the capacity to face with serenity odds that are not included in our expectations. For them, Discipline is a volitional act that enables them to take anything that comes their way without regrets or expectations. For sorcerers, discipline is an art, the art of facing infinity without flinching, not because they're filled with toughness, but because they're filled with awe. Discipline is the art of awe says Carlos. We don't grow in a straight line, but we grow in ascending and descending and tilting circles. And what makes this all bearable is awe. That undefended, open-hearted quality we could call awe in relationship to the way of things. The Buddha tells us, rooted in careful attention, careful attention is declared to be the chief. Accomplished in careful attention with a mind that has developed the enlightenment factor of mindfulness and discernment. One penetrates and sunders the mass of greed that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of hatred that one has never before penetrated and sundered, the mass of delusion that one has never before penetrated and sundered. And he goes on to say, Yogis, just as all the rafters of a peaked house slant, slope, and incline towards the peak roof peak, so too, when a yogi develops and cultivates mindfulness and discernment and all the other factors of enlightenment, which are a balanced effort, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, he she slants, slopes, and inclines towards Nibbana. And I'd like to close this evening's talk with a short poem from Rumi. Don't try to be the sun. Be a dust moat, lunar moth, Love the candle, taste your life, put your shoes on, upside down. And let's sit for just a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.